0: If you would take your Bibles, hopefully if you don't have one with you, there should be one close by you in the chairs there. If you would take that Bible and you would turn to Judges, chapter 13. Be looking there. Get past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Let's take time to pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Lord, we thank You and we praise You and we worship You this morning. We thank You for the great privilege of reading Your Word in our own language, to hear it, to resonate with it. Lord, we ask that as it is preached this morning, that Christ would preach to us, that He would teach us of all the truths that He delights to show us this morning by His Spirit. And Lord, would You bless our hearts Would we leave this place transformed new different people because we've heard truth and it has set us free we pray this in Jesus name for his sake amen this is God's word and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat and the grain offering, and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Esta'al. This is the reading of God's Word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Anticipation. I remember growing up with that song playing on the radio. And then, of course, the the Heinz commercial came out, you know, with hands is the waiting, it's making me wait, you know, anticipation. That that song resonated um, in my life growing up. And as I have grown in my understanding of the scriptures, I've realized that in a very strange way, God was teaching me something, some biblical truth out of that song that I heard on the radio growing up. The sense of anticipation. That is the longing of the scriptures. You can't start a Genesis and start reading very long before you start to realize that there is this sense of longing, this sense of anticipation. And this passage before us does not fail us in showing us that there is a sense of sort of a sub climax, a mini climax to the story of Scripture in the fact that in the book of Judges, Samson kind of is the big crescendo, if you will. I mean, there's this reality that happens here that, that makes us think back about Jacob and Isaac and also makes us think forward about Samuel and John the Baptist, this barren woman hears this great message of hope. You will have a child. Unto you a child is given. And you hear that language, and anyone who's read through Luke, you can't read through Luke and not hear how Luke somehow has gotten wrapped up in the language of Judges. This child growing up before the Lord and setting before. There's this sense of anticipation with Samson himself that he's going to do great things. Anticipation. But this anticipation also is rooted in what I would consider the great rubric of Scripture which is found in Genesis 3.15. This longing that one will come to crush the head of the serpent that deceived Eve and plunged humanity into sin. Anticipation of relief, of burden. Anticipation. That somehow we might stop doing things which we don't want to do to one another. Anticipation. That we might be lifted out of this veil of darkness into the reality of light. That we might see truth. That we might see justice. That we might see mercy. Anticipation. That's what this passage is all about. That's what the Scriptures are all about. Anticipation of one who will come to deliver humanity from its burden. Well, let's begin to look at this then because what is really being drawn out here is is, is this longing for a Redeemer who will be like no other. And we see here that we have inklings of that in this passage. The first thing I want us to do, we're going to look at four points this morning. The first one is the defining of sin. You can't get away from verse 1. You, know, you could try and jump over it and jump right into the story of, of Samson, but you'd miss the whole first verse, which is setting a tempo. And look what it says. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Look at what it says there. Evil in the sight of the Lord. One of the Hallmarks of Judges, and for anybody who spent any time there, you know what of the mantras is there. And there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. What is what are we getting at there? What is this idea of the in the sight of the Lord, evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, you can see right there that there's obviously something that's being juxtaposed. It was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not evil in their eyes. And we need to kind of explore that and understand that so that we see how this anticipation is growing. This is the idea of of things being right in your own eyes. My heart and my mind are the means of defining right and wrong. That just seems wrong to me. Or something like this. It can't be wrong if so many people agree with it. Now, lest you think, oh, that's those people out there. You all do this yourselves. You do. Well... All reformed people know that's right. Well, all evangelicals know that's true. Is that really necessarily make it true? Is that the foundation of truth is our hearts and minds? I remember this mantra growing up. "The Bible says it, I believe it, and that makes it so. There's something wrong with that, isn't there? Who cares what I believe? That doesn't make anything true or not true just because I believe it. I'm not essential to any equation I can come up with to whether or not something is true. But see, the reality is, and what we need to really come to terms with is oftentimes as believers, as well as people who are non-believers, we tend to set up reality in our own eyes and define the world by the parameters that make us comfortable. This is exactly how racism flourishes, even in evangelical communities. Don't you understand that? Don't you you see that? I mean, there were many godly people that lived in the south, and in the north for that matter, who actually supported slavery. How can that be? People who know of Jesus, who came to set the captive free, defending slavery and saying, this is good, just, and right that another group of human beings would be put to servitude. How could Germans, good Lutheran Germans, the stock of which I was raised up in, have actually allowed the state of Germany to overrun them and to kill not just Jews, but literally anybody who didn't fit into the perspective of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi, and the Nazi regime? How does things like that happen? Because people begin to allow society to be judged by what's right in their own eyes. This can also happen in the sense of evangelical Christians when we say, well, we're doing what we can. This is the way things look. So somehow, well, we're going to go down to the gospel rescue mission. So if we really help the poor, have we really help the poor? Is that something that's a hallmark, a testimony of our church specifically or the church of Tucson at large? That the church is known, the gospel has transformed us to where we actually weep over people being destitute and in poverty of soul and in spirit and in body? Or have we oftentimes said, well, we do this and we give to this and we've done these things and somehow said we fulfilled our duty in that regard. I think too often, too often, if we're honest with ourselves, we're allowing ourselves to believe something that's right in our own eyes and not really letting Scripture speak to our hearts in profound ways. Cultural elitism. Our form of worship is the right one. Because it's the one that the people we agree with said this is the way we think worship ought to look. And these people groups are Johnny-come-latelys to the Christian faith. Although, just for the record, um, Christianity went east and into Africa before it ever came west. We, We need to think about how we process and what we say. Well, this is right. This is correct in our own eyes. See, we can be guilty of this, and we have to understand that when it talks about, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, understand what's really getting at is, it's really wrestling with both rebelliousness, those who would say, I will unshackle myself from God. What does He have to say to me? I have the freedom to do what I will, when I will, the way that I will. But it also confronts self-righteousness, which says, I know how to serve God best rather than having the humility which comes from the Gospel, which always tells us, yes, convictions matter. Doctrine matters. But we, because we understand those things, are to be the most humble of people, the most generous of people, the most gracious towards others who may not know and may not yet understand all that they should. That's the hallmark of true biblical Christianity. Another thing we see in this passage that's interesting is this. In some sense, what we get from this first verse is this idea that the people have become used to their servitude. They just kind of, this is just the way things are. And see, another aspect of, of doing what's right in our own eyes is to say, this is as good as it gets with God. This is just how it is with God. Life just stinks. It's just hard. Life stinks and then you die. And hopefully you get to someplace better when you die. But don't you understand that throughout the Scriptures, we're not just told that we've got a pie waiting up for us in the sky. The language of Scripture always tells us that that life is a present reality now. That's being pressed into us now. One of the things we've been talking about recently as a family is, is that when people come into our home, when they're around us, We've been repenting lately that people don't experience heaven when they talk to the hermitings. And that bothers me. Because we're people of everlasting life. And see, we don't have a right to somehow think that it's okay for us to do things because, well, that's just who we are. Well, that's just where we're at in our lives. You just have to deal with us. We really feel as a family that we ought to own our Christianity in such a way that when people come and meet with us, not that we're fake or false, but that people ought to taste at least a little bit of what life with Jesus is going to be like for all of eternity. And we pray that God will continue to make that grow in us. That's part of what it means, I believe, as each one of us starts to own this, to not be doing things that are right in our own eyes, but really letting heaven shove into us in such a way that people go, there's something incredible happening here that's not just they're different, not just they got a better way of doing it, not that just they figured out how to make things operate, which is oftentimes how people look at biblical principles. Yeah, the Bible's got some good advice. That's some, that's some sage wisdom. And we're talking about stuff that changes us to where when people meet us, they say, I've never been around someone like that ever. And what really should be the hallmark of it is is that they've experienced Jesus, not really us. Jesus has just surrounded us and embraced us and emboldened us in ways that are just unearthly and yet very relevant to our time and space on this earth. That's how we start to really wrestle with not doing things that are right in our own eyes. Similarly, we really are believing the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're longing for that reality to be the case for us. That mercy and grace and goodness would be believed on our part and pressed out into everyone we meet. So, that's the first thing we need to do is we need to define sin. We need to recognize that it, is, it comes, how we start to deal with sin is it is our willingness to deal with sin and look at the depths and see its reality that enables us to see the sweetness of salvation offered to us in Christ Jesus. The sweetness of salvation offered to us as we look at what's happening here with Samson. It's like this. I've said this passage before, and I'll say it again. Thomas Watson says, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. You see, God's sweetness is not seen in its fullness until you realize how really yucky you are. And a willingness to let yourself see, well, I'm yuckier. And you keep pressing more deeply into the reality of your yuckiness. You start seeing, God could love a person like that. And you see how the people had lost that? Because they don't even turn and cry out. They don't do anything. This message that comes to this couple comes despite the people's willingness to just embrace the reality they were living in. How tragic when God's people say, this is as good as it gets. Well, this is the best you can hope for in this life. That's just the way it is. See, we must be people that are willing to say, no, there are greater things. There are more profound things. There are more beautiful and lovely things. Because we know the author of everything good and beautiful and lovely. That's the first point I want us to look at this morning. The second point I want us to look at then is is the reality of what happens here, as I've already alluded to a little bit, the unexpected birth. This kind of comes out of left field, right? I mean, anybody who's read Judges knows that the pattern, right? The people sin. They do stupid things. They don't listen to the Lord who loves them and cherishes them and wants to lead them in the way that is right. And they go off to do their own thing, what's right in their own eyes, what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And then what they're supposed to do is God afflicts them, right? And they're supposed to do what? Cry out. It's totally absent. Here at what's supposed to be the grand crescendo of this book in some ways, because the next chapter is really just, it just sinks into the pit. But here's supposed to be the announcement of a Birth. And and what we're surrounded by is people who don't seem to be repentant at all, don't seem to be desirous to get free at all. They seem to be very okay with living in captivity, in boundedness. They've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They've accepted the fact that these are the good things we've got. We eat, drink, for tomorrow we probably die. And so we see in this passage in the book of Judges and in the Bible as a whole, it's unexpected In the midst of these people's willingness to not even cry out to God any longer, God comes and proclaims to this obscure couple, so obscure that we only get the man's name. I mean, we only we get Manoah and Mrs. Manoah. We don't even know her name. She's I mean, she's so obscure, we don't even I mean, and yet isn't it interesting that that God comes and talks to her? Not Manoah. We get Manoah's name. But He comes and talks to her. Both times. Profound. Amazing. Incredible. This unexpected birth. Even though Israel does not cry out for deliverance in repentance, the Lord sends a Redeemer anyway. Now see, you have to begin to see how amazing this is. That when we start to see that God announces, I'm going to send a Redeemer despite you, in spite of you. Again, the theme we've been trying to look at over the last months. God has determined to redeem for Himself a people and He cannot be stopped. Not even by our unwillingness to repent and turn to Him. He keeps coming forward anyway. Unexpectedly. Surprisingly. Astoundingly. There He is! Declaring to these People, in this obscure village, your shame is about to be lifted, dear one, and you're going to give birth, not just to a child, but to a son. And he will begin to deliver his people from the Philistines. Unexpected. Surprising. This unexpected couple, as I said before, points us backwards to Isaac and Jacob, points us forward to Samuel and John the Baptist. The third thing I want us to look at this morning, then, is the unique requirement. This is really fascinating. It's not just the fact that she will conceive and bear a son, which was so unexpected. It's the fact that there's something unusual happening here. Back in number six, where you can go and read about the Nazarite vow, two things are true of the Nazarite vow. One is that it's temporary. The other is it's voluntary. Those are two critical things that you have to see about the Nazarite vow, Notice that both of those elements are missing here in Samson. This is not something he chose to do. This is something that's thrust upon him, and by virtue of that thrust upon his mother, because she's to abstain from all the things that he's to abstain from while she carries him. Throughout his whole life, he is supposed to be a sign of 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 the commitment to God. The whole, his whole life. And his whole character is to be devoted to God. It was wholehearted devotion to God. That's what Samson was set apart to represent. The other thing I want to remind you of is the fact of the Nazarite letting his hair grow long. Some people read the, read the whole story of Samson. And they go, well, see, his hair got cut off. The strength was in the hair. No, the strength was in his God. When Samson basically gave up to Delilah the reality of of God's treasure to him, God departed from him. It wasn't the cutting of his hair. It was his failure to believe and trust the Lord. Rather, he began to succumb to the very things that we're talking about here. Doing what was right in his own eyes. Not what he'd been set apart for. But we see here that this unique requirement of Samson was to be from birth. That's it's interesting because when you go to the New Testament, you hear this little phrase given, that the one who was born the king of Israel. It's a fascinating statement. Born king. No one's born king. You're inaugurated king. You're born and you're raised up as a prince and then you get crowned and you become king if everything goes right. And nobody overthrows the kingdom while you're growing up, or uh, Uncle Duke, Uncle whoever doesn't wipe you out and all the rest of your family to take over the throne. But the way it ought to work out is that you grow up. But we find in the New Testament one who was born the King of Israel, from from the very beginning of his life, all of his life, wholeheartedly devoted to God and on a mission. Kings come to set people free. Kings come to deliver their people. Kings come to protect their people. That's what kings do. They enable commerce and peace and goodness to pervade. Good kings do anyway. And here is one we read of in the New Testament who was born the king of... Of Israel, the same idea of a unique requirement sets Samson apart. The last point I want us to look at before we conclude then is the revealing sacrifice. Notice that there's aspects of this that we look at. Manoah has all these requirements coming at him. He he comes I just want to say this by by reference. There's two things I just want you to think about, and you can go home and think about this later. They aren't directly points I want to look at this morning, but it just lets you know this passage is is has a lot to say. One of the things that's really profound is the angels of the Lord tearing, telling this woman she's barren. There's something about the gospel, there's something about the truth of scripture that enables people to hear honest reflections of themselves and not just go to pieces. And the the angel basically says to this woman, you're barren, you got no children. You know, For some people, you think about this, they go to pieces if they were to hear that. I mean, especially a woman who has lived her whole life with the shame and the guilt that was associated with being barren. And here the angel of the Lord shows up and says, you're barren. But you see in some ways when that kind of honesty, that kind of biblical honesty is dealt with you know, in the way that it's being dealt with here, it's actually something that sets you free. You're able to look squarely at the issue that get, brings shame and guilt to you and begin to be delivered from it because you're no longer hiding in its shadow. You're bringing it into the light and saying, that's true, I am. But notice how God is not is, is delivering her in that, in that section from any sense that somehow her barrenness is a matter of her shame and guilt. In some sense, he actually sets her free. The other thing that's interesting is, is that Manoah in this passage wants to go find more rules and regulations to obey. You notice that? What else do you want us to do? I mean, tell us the whole mission. Give us insight into all the things that we need to know so we can do it right. And what's the angel of the Lord say? I told you what you need to know. Just get that done. Isn't it incredible how as God's people, we're always got to know? What's the mission? What are we doing? Why are we doing that? I got to know. You see, I'm owed an explanation before I obey. The real question maybe sometimes this pastor may be telling us is, exactly who do we think we are? That we deserve to be, have everything explained to us. Who do we think we are? God or something? I want us to think about those things as you look at this final point, the revealing sacrifice. Because see, this is what happens here, that heart attitude that I just talked about. Look what happens here. What we see is the angel of the Lord tells him when he says, hey, let me go make you a meal. I just wonder if maybe Manoah thought, hey, I kind of remember old grandpappy telling me about old father Abraham. And now he made a meal. When this holy, this holy three showed up, and he made this meal and prepared it for him. And part of this is the hospitality of the age. This at this time, that's what you did when somebody showed up. You prepared them a meal. That was part of the hospitality. But I almost wonder if there's not something in the back of Manoah's mind that says, "Okay, this is some. This guy's special." And we make a meal. And the angel of the Lord says, "Oh, I don't want to eat with you, but you can make a sacrifice to the Lord." And the thing that's amazing is, is that when the angel of the Lord goes up into that flame, look up at Noah's response. Here's the man who said, give me more information, more knowledge of how to obey you and how to keep things right and how to do it the way you want to. Let me know the mission and let me have all this insight. And what's his response when the angel of the Lord goes up in the flame? We're going to die. Now, too often, what happens sometimes to god 's people is is they get so wrapped up in the fact that we have a holy God, and oh, He is holy, make no mistake about it. It is right for us to remember He is a holy God, but we allow His holiness somehow to overshadow his goodness, his mercy, his determination to show grace. To fallen humanity. And don't you see how Mrs. Manoah has started to get it? If the angel of the Lord had wanted to kill us, He would have already done it. He certainly wouldn't have accepted and gone up in the flame. And on top of that, He certainly would not have given us good news of great tidings that should bring us great joy. Unto us is born a child. You see the language, and do you understand now, as we conclude here? do you start to see where we 're going with this? Do you see what the bible 's trying to get you to see? You see what happens here is is that we need to be delivered from sin, and if you get this part of the Old Testament, you see this passage of scripture flowing forward when you get to Matthew chapter one verses twenty one and you read You shall call his name Jesus, for he will deliver his people from their sin. You see it, don't you? People who were in darkness have seen a great light. Not because they were crying out for it. In fact, what we get kind of at this time is Rome had kind of taken over everything. Everybody was kind of just laid low, and that's just the way things are. And is God ever going to send a real deliverer? And in the midst of that, darkness. That willingness to kind of say, this is just as good as it gets. Light comes. Deliverance comes. A Redeemer comes. And I want to show you something about the manner of His coming. In all the Old Testament, we see barren women. And and really, you should kind of almost think about John the Baptist as kind of really the Old Testament. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. All the way up to Elizabeth, barren women who are weighed down with shame because they have not been able to deliver a man-child. And the angel of the Lord appears and delivers them from their guilt and shame. But how different it is When Jesus arrives on the scene, see, when Jesus arrives on the scene, his mother isn't held up in honor and said, this is the kind of woman you ought to grow up to be like. See, unfortunately, in our world, Mary has been so venerated by some in the broader Christian community that we've almost done the, the backlash against her and made her somebody that's just that's Mary. She's just a woman. She's not just a woman. She was the woman that God said, you are blessed among all women because you will carry the Christ child. You, you are somebody whose character ought to be thought about and considered. A woman who would say, do to me, Lord, what you will. including me being called a whore. Because I dared to get pregnant without being fully married. Because the Lord had called me to that. And we see that Mary's issues are very small in comparison to what her son would endure. You see, Jesus, unlike all his predecessors who were set up as types of redeemers, actually did live a perfect life. He didn't go wandering after Delilah. He didn't go down and eat out of the lion that he killed and he wasn't supposed to touch. He didn't do any of those things. He lived the perfect life and yet he died in shame. See, Jesus comes and says, I take the guilt and shame on myself so that we might be delivered from it few other points I want us to to realize this that the unique requirement which was perfect obedience Jesus fulfills see he's like no other redeemer because he actually obeyed he actually accomplished it he did it he was perfect in every way and the last thing I want us to see is in his sacrifice was revealed that God had come to deliver his people think about what happens at the cross The centurion that stands there had watched hundreds, maybe even thousands of people crucified in his lifetime. And as he saw Jesus die, he said, surely this was the Son of God. So this morning I lay before you the reality of Scripture. The anticipation of Scripture is that God would send a Redeemer To deliver his people from bondage, to bring justice, and to set us free. And what we see in the person of Jesus is that God has kept his promise, that the anticipation that was felt throughout the Old Testament was answered 2,000 years ago in the small town of Bethlehem, in a cave, in a manger where a child was born, the Savior of the world. If you would put your faith in that one, the Savior of the world, you will be delivered and set free. I pray that God would make it so in our midst. Amen.